Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2, Chapter 2 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 2, A Sight. You know the old Bailey well, no doubt said one of the oldest of clerks to Jerry the messenger. "'Yes, sir,' returned Jerry in something of a dogged manner. "'I do know the Bailey.' "'Just so. And you know Mr. Lorry?' "'I know Mr. Lorry, sir, much better than I know the Bailey, much better,' said Jerry, not unlike a reluctant witness at the establishment in question. "'Then I, as an honest tradesman, wish to know the Bailey.' "'Very well. Find the door where the witnesses go in, and show the doorkeeper this note for Mr. Lorry. He will then let you in. Enter the court, sir. Enter the court. Mr. Cruncher's eyes seemed to get a little closer to one another, and to interchange the inquiry. What do you think of this? Am I to wait in the court, sir? he asked as a result of that conference. "'I am going to tell you. The doorkeeper will pass the note to Mr. Lorry, and do you make any gesture that will attract Mr. Lorry's attention, and show him where you stand. Then what you have to do is to remain there until he wants you.' "'Is that all, sir?' "'That's all. He wishes to have a messenger at hand. This is to tell him you are there.' As the ancient clerk deliberately folded and superscribed the note, Mr. Cruncher, after surveying him in silence until he came to the blotting-paper stage, remarked, "'I suppose they'll be trying forgeries this morning.' "'Treason!' "'That's quartering,' said Jerry. "'Barbarous!' "'It is the law,' remarked the ancient clerk, turning his surprised spectacles upon him. "'It is the law.' "'It's hard in the law to spile a man, I think. "'It's hard enough to kill him, but it's very hard to spile him, sir.' "'Not at all,' retained the ancient clerk. "'Speak well of the law. "'Take care of your chest and voice, my good friend, "'and leave the law to take care of itself. "'I give you that advice.' "'It's the damp, sir, what settles on my chest and voice,' said Jerry. "'I leave you to judge what a damp way of earning a living mine is.' "'Well, well,' said the old clerk, "'we all have our various ways of gaining a livelihood. "'Some of us have damp ways, and some of us have dry ways. "'Here is the letter. Go along.' "'Jerry took the letter, and remarking to himself "'with less internal deference than he made an outward show of, "'You're a lean old one, too,' made his bow, "'informed his son in passing of his destination, and went his way.' They hanged at Tyburn in those days, so the street outside Newgate had not obtained one infamous notoriety that has since attached to it. But the jail was a vile place in which most kinds of debauchery and villainy were practised, and where dire diseases were bred that came into court with the prisoners, and sometimes rushed straight from the dock at my Lord Chief Justice himself, and pulled him off the bench.' 
It had more than once happened that the judge in the black cap pronounced his own doom as certainly as the prisoner's had even died before him. For the rest, the old bailey was famous as a kind of deadly inn-yard from which pale travellers set out continually in carts and coaches on a violent passage into the other world, traversing some two miles and a half of public streets and road, and shaming few good citizens, if any. So powerful is use, and so desirable to be good use in the beginning. It was famous, too, for the pillory, a wise old institution that inflicted a punishment of which no one could foresee the extent. Also for the whipping-post, another dear old institution, very humanizing and softening to behold in action also for extensive transactions in blood-money another fragment of ancestral wisdom systematically leading to the most frightful mercenary crimes that could be committed under heaven altogether the old bailey at that date was a choice illustration of the precept that whatever is is right an aphorism that would be as final as it is lazy did it not include the troublesome consequence that nothing that ever was was wrong making his way through the tainted crowd dispersed up and down this hideous scene of action with the skill of a man accustomed to make his way quietly the messenger found out the door he sought and handed in his letter through a trap in it for People then paid to see the play at the Old Bailey, just as they paid to see the play in Bedlam, only the former entertainment was much the dearer. Therefore, all the Old Bailey doors were well guarded, except, indeed, the social doors by which the criminals got there, and those were always left wide open. After some delay and demur, the door grudgingly turned on its hinges a very little way and allowed Mr. Jerry Cruncher to squeeze himself into court. "'What's on?' he asked in a whisper of the man he found himself next to. "'Nothing yet. What's coming on? The treason case, the quartering one, eh?' ah returned the man with a relish he'll be drawn on a hurdle to be half hanged and then he'll be taken down and sliced before his own face and then his inside will be taken out and burnt while he looks on and then his head will be chopped off and he'll be cut into quarters that's the sentence if he's found guilty you mean to say jerry added by way of proviso oh they'll find him guilty said the other don't you be afraid of that Mr. Crunch's attention was here diverted to the doorkeeper, whom he saw making his way to Mr. Lorry, with the note in his hand. Mr. Lorry sat at a table among the gentlemen in wigs, not far from a wigged gentleman, the prisoner's counsel, who had a great bundle of papers before him, and nearly opposite another wigged gentleman with his hands in his pockets, whose whole attention, when Mr. Cruncher looked at him then or afterwards, seemed to be concentrated on the ceiling of the court after some gruff coughing and rubbing of his chin and signing with his hand jerry attracted the notice of mr lorry who had stood up to look for him and who quietly nodded and sat down again what's he got to do with the case asked the man he had spoken with blessed if i know said jerry what have you got to do with it then if a person may inquire blessed if i know that either said jerry 
the entrance of the judge and a consequent great stir and settling down in the court stopped the dialogue presently the dock became the central point of interest two jailers who had been standing there went out and the prisoner was brought in and put to the bar everybody present except the one-wigged gentleman who looked at the ceiling stared at him all the human breath in the place rolled at him like a sea or a wind or a fire eager faces strained round pillars and corners to get a sight of him spectators in back rows stood up not to miss a hair of him people on the floor of the court laid their hands on the shoulders of the people before them to help themselves at anybody's cost to a view of him stood a tiptoe got upon ledges stood upon next to nothing to see every inch of him conspicuous among these latter like an animated bit of the spiked wall of newgate jerry stood aiming at the prisoner the beery breath of what he had taken as he came along and discharging it to mingle with the waves of other beer and gin and tea and coffee and what not that flowed at him and already broke upon the great windows behind him in an impure mist and rain the object of all this staring and blaring was a young man of about five-and-twenty well-grown and well-looking with a sunburnt cheek and a dark eye his condition was that of a young gentleman he was plainly dressed in black or very dark grey and his hair which was long and dark was gathered in a ribbon at the back of his neck more to be out of his way than for ornament as an emotion of the mind will express itself through any covering of the body so the paleness which his situation engendered came through the brown upon his cheek showing the soul to be stronger than the sun he was otherwise quite self-possessed bowed to the judge and stood quiet the sort of interest with which this man was stared and breathed at was not a sort that elevated humanity had he stood in peril of a less horrible sentence had there been a chance of any one of its savage details being spared by just so much would he have lost in his fascination the form that was to be doomed to be so shamefully mangled was the sight the immortal creature that was to be so butchered and torn asunder yielded the sensation whatever gloss the various spectators put upon the interest according to their several arts and powers of self-deceit the interest was at the root of it ogreish silence in the court charles darnay had yesterday pleaded not guilty to an indictment denouncing him with infinite jingle and jangle for that he was a false traitor to our serene illustrious excellent and so forth prince our lord the king by reason of his having on divers occasions and by divers means and ways assisted louis the french king in his wars against our said serene illustrious excellent and so forth that was to say by coming and going between the dominions of our said serene illustrious excellent and so forth and those of the said French Lewis, and wickedly, falsely, traitorously, and otherwise evil adverbiously, revealing to the said French Lewis what forces our said serene, illustrious, excellent, and so forth, had in preparation to send to Canada and North America. 
This much Jerry, with his head becoming more and more spiky, as the law terms bristled it, made out with huge satisfaction, and so arrived circuitously at the understanding that the aforesaid, and over and over again aforesaid, Charles Darnay, stood there before him upon his trial, that the jury was swearing in, and that Mr. Attorney-General was making ready to speak. The accused, who was, and who knew he was, being mentally hanged, beheaded, and quartered by everybody there, neither flinched from the situation nor assumed any theatrical air in it. He was quiet and attentive, watched the opening proceedings with a grave interest, and stood with his hands resting on a slab of wood before him, so composedly that they had not displaced a leaf of the herbs with which it was strewn. The court was all bestrewn with herbs and sprinkled with vinegar as a precaution against jail air and jail fever. Over the prisoner's head there was a mirror to throw the light down upon him. Crowds of the wicked and the wretched had been reflected in it, and had passed from its surface and this earth's together. Haunted in a most ghastly manner that abominable place would have been if the glass could ever have rendered back its reflections, as the ocean is one day to give up its dead. Some passing thought of the infamy and disgrace for which it had been reserved may have struck the prisoner's mind. Be that as it may, a change in his position making him conscious of a bar of light across his face, he looked up and when he saw the glass his face flushed and his right hand pushed the herbs away it happened that the action turned his face to that side of the court which was on his left about on a level with his eyes there sat in that corner of the judge's bench two persons upon whom his look immediately rested so immediately and so much to the changing of his aspect that all the eyes that were turned upon him turned to them. The spectators saw in the two figures a young lady of little more than twenty and a gentleman who was evidently her father, a man of a very remarkable appearance in respect of the absolute whiteness of his hair and a certain indescribable intensity of face, not of an active kind, but pondering and self-communing. When this expression was upon him, he looked as if he were old, but when it was stirred and broken up, as it was now in a moment on his speaking to his daughter, he became a handsome man, not past the prime of life. His daughter had one of her hands drawn through his arm as she sat by him, and the other pressed upon it. She had drawn close to him in her dread of the scene and in her pity for the prisoner her forehead had been strikingly expressive of an engrossing terror and compassion that saw nothing but the peril of the accused this had been so very noticeable so very powerfully and naturally shown that starers who had had no pity for him were touched by her and the whisper went about who are they Jerry, the messenger, who had made his own observations, in his own manner, and who had been sucking the rust off his fingers in his absorption, stretched his neck to hear who they were. The crowd about him had pressed and passed the inquiry on to the nearest attendant, and from him it had been more slowly pressed and passed back. At last it got to Jerry. Witnesses. For which side? Against. Against what side? The prisoners. 
The judge, whose eyes had gone in the general direction, recalled them, leaned back in his seat, and looked steadily at a man whose life was in his hand. As Mr. Attorney-General rose to spin the rope, grind the axe, and hammer the nails into the scaffold! End of Book 2, Chapter 2, Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book Two, Chapter Three of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Three: A Disappointment. Mister Attorney General had to inform the jury that the prisoner before them, though young in years, was old in the treasonable practices which claimed the forfeit of his life that this correspondence with the public enemy was not a correspondence of to-day or of yesterday or even of last year or of the year before that it was certain the prisoner had for longer than that been in the habit of passing and repassing between france and england on secret business of which he could give no honest account that if it were in the nature of traitorous ways to thrive which happily it never was the real wickedness and guilt of his business might have remained undiscovered that providence however had put it into the heart of a person who was beyond fear and beyond reproach to ferret out the nature of the prisoner's schemes and struck with horror to disclose them to his majesty's chief secretary of state and most honourable privy council that this patriot would be produced before them that his position and attitude were on the whole sublime that he had been the prisoner's friend but at once in an auspicious and an evil hour detecting his infamy had resolved to immolate the traitor he could no longer cherish in his bosom on the sacred altar of his country that if statues were decreed in britain as in ancient greece and rome to public benefactors the shining citizen would assuredly have had one that as they were not so decreed he probably would not have one that virtue as has been observed by the poets in many passages which he well knew the jury would have word for word at the tips of their tongues whereat the jury's countenances displayed a guilty consciousness that they knew nothing about the passages was in a manner contagious more especially the bright virtue known as patriotism or love of country that the lofty example of this immaculate and unimpeachable witness for the crown to refer to whom however unworthily was an honour had communicated itself to the prisoner's servant and had engendered in him a holy determination to examine his master's table drawers and pockets and secrete his papers that he mr attorney-general was prepared to hear some disparagement attempted of this admirable servant but that in a general way he preferred him to his mr attorney-general's brothers and sisters and honoured him more than his mr attorney-general's father and mother 
that he called with confidence on the jury to come and do likewise that the evidence of these two witnesses coupled with the documents of their discovering that would be produced would show the prisoner to have been furnished with lists of his majesty's forces and of their disposition and preparation both by sea and land and would leave no doubt that he had habitually conveyed such information to a hostile power that these lists could not be proved to be in the prisoner's handwriting but that it was all the same that indeed it was rather the better for the prosecution as showing the prisoner to be artful in his precautions that the proof would go back five years and would show the prisoner already engaged in these pernicious missions within a few weeks before the date of the very first action fought between the british troops and the americans that for these reasons the jury being a loyal jury as he knew they were and being a responsible jury as they knew they were must positively find the prisoner guilty and make an end of him whether they liked it or not that they never could lay their heads upon their pillows that they never could tolerate the idea of their wives laying their heads upon their pillows that they never could endure the notion of their children laying their heads upon their pillows in short that there never more could be for them or theirs any laying of heads upon pillows at all unless the prisoner's head was taken off that head mr attorney-general concluded by demanding of them in the name of everything he could think of with a round turn in it and on the faith of his solemn asseveration that he already considered the prisoner as good as dead and gone when the attorney-general ceased a buzz arose in the court as if a cloud of great blue flies were swarming about the prisoner in anticipation of what he was soon to become when toned down again the unimpeachable patriot appeared in the witness-box mr solicitor-general then following his leader's lead examined the patriot john barsad gentleman by name the story of his pure soul was exactly what mr attorney-general had described it to be perhaps if it had a fault a little too exactly having released his noble bosom of its burden he would have modestly withdrawn himself but that the wicked gentleman with the papers before him sitting not far from mr lorry begged to ask him a few questions the wicked gentleman sitting opposite still looking at the ceiling of the court had he ever been a spy himself no he scorned the base insinuation what did he live upon his property where was his property he didn't precisely remember where it was what was it no business of anybody's had he inherited it yes he had from whom distant relation very distant rather ever been in prison certainly not never in a debtor's prison didn't see what that had to do with it never in a debtor's prison come once again never yes how many times two or three times not five or six perhaps of what profession gentlemen ever been kicked might have been frequently no ever kicked downstairs decidedly not once received a kick on the top of the staircase and fell downstairs of his own accord kicked on that occasion for cheating at dice 
and something to that effect was said by the intoxicated liar who committed the assault, but it was not true. Swear it was not true? Positively. Ever lived by cheating at play? Never. Ever lived by play? Not more than other gentlemen do. Ever borrow money of the prisoner? Yes. Ever pay him? No. Was not this intimacy with the prisoner in reality a very slight one, forced upon the prisoner in coaches, inns, and packets? No. Sure he saw the prisoner with these lists? Certain. Knew no more about the lists? No. Had not procured them himself, for instance? No. Expect to get anything by this evidence? No. Not in regular government pay and employment to lay traps? Oh, dear, no. Or to do anything? Oh, dear, no. Swear that over and over again. No motives but motives of sheer patriotism? None whatsoever. The virtuous servant, Roger Cly, swore his way through the case at a great rate. He had taken service with the prisoner, in good faith and simplicity, four years ago. He had asked the prisoner, aboard the Calais packet, if he wanted a handy fellow, and the prisoner had engaged him. He had not asked the prisoner to take the handy fellow as an act of charity, never thought of such a thing. He began to have suspicions of the prisoner, and to keep an eye upon him soon afterwards in arranging his clothes. While travelling, he had seen similar lists to these in the prisoner's pockets over and over again. He had taken these lists from the drawer of the prisoner's desk. He had not put them there first. He had seen the prisoner show these identical lists to French gentlemen at Calais, and similar lists to French gentlemen both at Calais and Boulogne. He loved his country, and couldn't bear it, and had given information. He had never been suspected of stealing a silver teapot. He had been maligned respecting a mustard-pot, but it turned out to be only a plated one. He had known the last witness seven or eight years. That was merely a coincidence. He didn't call it a particularly curious coincidence. Most coincidences were curious. Neither did he call it a curious coincidence that true patriotism was his only motive, too. He was a true Briton, and hoped there were many like him. The blue flies buzzed again, and Mr. Attorney-General called Mr. Jarvis Lorry. "'Mr. Jarvis Lorry, are you a clerk in Telson's bank?' "'I am.' On a certain Friday night in November 1775, did business occasion you to travel between London and Dover by the mail? It did. Were there any other passengers in the mail? Two. Did they alight on the road in the course of the night? They did. Mr. Lorry, look upon the prisoner. Was he one of those two passengers? I cannot undertake to say that he was. Does he resemble either of these two passengers? Both were so wrapped up, and the night was so dark, and we were all so reserved, that I cannot undertake to say even that. Mr. Lorry, look again upon the prisoner. Supposing him wrapped up as those two passengers were, is there anything in his bulk and stature to render it unlikely that he was one of them? No. You will not swear, Mr. Lorry, that he was not one of them? No. So at least you say he may have been one of them. Yes, except that I remember them both to have been, like myself, timorous of highwaymen, and the prisoner has not a timorous air. Did you ever see a counterfeit of timidity, Mr. Lorry? 
I certainly have seen that. Mr. Lorry, look once more upon the prisoner. Have you seen him to your certain knowledge before? I have. When? I was returning from France a few days afterwards, and at Calais the prisoner came on board the packet-ship in which I returned and made the voyage with me. At what hour did he come on board? At a little after midnight. In the dead of the night. Was he the only passenger who came on board at that untimely hour? He happened to be the only one. Never mind about happening, Mr. Lorry. He was the only passenger who came on board in the dead of the night? He was. Were you travelling alone, Mr. Lorry, or with any companion? With two companions, a gentleman and a lady. They are here. They are here. Have you had any conversation with the prisoner? Hardly any. The weather was stormy and the passage long and rough, and I lay on a sofa almost from shore to shore. Miss Manette. The young lady, to whom all eyes had been turned before, and were now turned again, stood up where she had sat. Her father rose with her, and kept her hand drawn through his arm. "'Miss Manette, look upon the prisoner!' To be confronted with such pity and such earnest youth and beauty was far more trying to the accused than to be confronted with all the crowd, standing, as it were, apart with her on the edge of his grave. Not all the staring curiosity that looked on could, for the moment, nerve him to remain quite still. His hurried right hand parcelled out the herbs before him into imaginary beds of flowers in a garden, and his efforts to control and steady his breathing shook the lips from which the colour rushed to his heart. The buzz of the great flies was loud again. "'Miss Manette, have you seen the prisoner before?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Where?' "'On board the packet-ship just now referred to, sir, and on the same occasion.' "'You are the young lady just now referred to?' "'Oh, most unhappily I am.' The plaintive tone of her compassion merged into the less musical voice of the judge, as he said something fiercely. "'Answer the questions put to you, and make no remark upon them.' "'Miss Manette, had you any conversation with the prisoner on that passage across the channel?' "'Yes, sir. Recall it.' In the midst of a profound stillness, she faintly began— when the gentleman came on board, do you mean the prisoner? inquired the judge, knitting his brows. Yes, my lord. Then say the prisoner. When the prisoner came on board, he noticed that my father, turning her eyes lovingly to him as he stood beside her, was much fatigued and in a very weak state of health. My father was so reduced that I was afraid to take him out of the air, and I had made a bed for him on the deck near the cabin steps, and I sat on the deck at his side to take care of him. There were no other passengers that night but we four. The prisoner was so good as to beg permission to advise me how I could shelter my father from the wind and weather better than I had done. I had not known how to do it well, not understanding how the wind would set when we were out of the harbour. He did it for me. He expressed great gentleness and kindness for my father's state, and I am sure he felt it. That was the manner of our beginning to speak together." Let me interrupt you for a moment. Had he come on board alone? No. How many were with him? Two French gentlemen. Had they conferred together? 
they had conferred together until the last moment when it was necessary for the french gentlemen to be landed in their boat had any papers been handed about among them similar to these lists some papers had been handed about among them but i don't know what papers like these in shape and size possibly but indeed i don't know although they stood whispering very near to me because they stood at the top of the cabin steps to have the light of the lamp that was having there it was a dull lamp and they spoke very low and i did not hear what they said and saw only that they looked at papers now to the prisoner's conversation miss manette the prisoner was as open in his confidence with me which arose out of my helpless situation as he was kind and good and useful to my father i hope bursting into tears i may not repay him by doing him harm to-day buzzing from the blue flies miss manette if the prisoner does not perfectly understand that you give the evidence which is your duty to give which you must give and which you cannot escape from giving with great unwillingness he is the only person present in that condition please to go on he told me that he was travelling on business of a delicate and difficult nature which might get people into trouble and that he was therefore travelling under an assumed name he said that this business had within a few days taken him to france and might at intervals take him backwards and forwards between france and england for a long time to come did he say anything about america miss manette be particular he tried to explain to me how that quarrel had arisen and he said that so far as he could judge it was a wrong and foolish one on england's part he added in a jesting way that perhaps george washington might gain almost as great a name in history as george the third but there was no harm in his way of saying this it was said laughingly and to beguile the time any strongly marked expression of face on the part of a chief actor in a scene of great interest to whom many eyes are directed will be unconsciously imitated by the spectators her forehead was painfully anxious and intent as she gave this evidence and in the pauses when she stopped for the judge to write it down watched its effect upon the counsel for and against among the lookers-on there was the same expression in all quarters of the court insomuch that a great majority of the foreheads there might have been mirrors reflecting the witness when the judge looked up from his notes to glare at that tremendous heresy about george washington mr attorney-general now signalled to my lord that he deemed it necessary as a matter of precaution and form to call the young lady's father dr manette who was called accordingly dr manette look upon the prisoner have you ever seen him before once when he called at my lodgings in london some three years or three years and a half ago can you identify him as your fellow-passenger on board the packet or speak to his conversation with your daughter sir i can do neither is there any particular and special reason for your being unable to do either he answered in a low voice there is has it been your misfortune to undergo a long imprisonment without trial or even accusation in your native country dr manette he answered in a tone that went to every heart, A long imprisonment.
Were you newly released on the occasion in question? They tell me so. Have you no remembrance of the occasion? None. My mind is a blank from some time, I cannot even say what time, when I employed myself in my captivity in making shoes, to the time when I found myself living in London with my dear daughter here. She had become familiar to me when a gracious God restored my faculties. But I am quite unable even to say how she has become familiar. I have no remembrance of the process." Mr. Attorney-General sat down, and the father and daughter sat down together. A singular circumstance then arose in the case, the object in hand being to show that the prisoner went down with some fellow-plotter untracked, in the Dover mail on that Friday night in November five years ago, and got out of the mail in the night, as a blind, at a place where he did not remain, but from which he travelled back some dozen miles or more to a garrison and dockyard, and there collected information. A witness was called to identify him, as having been at the precise time required in the coffee-room of an hotel in that garrison and dockyard town, waiting for another person. The prisoner's counsel was cross-examining this witness with no result, except that he had never seen the prisoner on any other occasion. When the wicked gentleman, who had all this time been looking at the ceiling of the court, wrote a word or two on a little piece of paper, screwed it up, and tossed it to him. Opening this piece of paper in the next pause, the counsel looked with great attention and curiosity at the prisoner. "'You say again you are quite sure that it was the prisoner?' The witness was quite sure. "'Did you ever see anybody very like the prisoner?' "'Not so like,' the witness said, as that he could be mistaken. "'Look well upon that gentleman, my learned friend, there.' pointing to him who had tossed the paper over, and then look well upon the prisoner. How say you? Are they very like each other? Allowing for my learned friend's appearance being careless and slovenly, if not debauched, they were sufficiently like each other to surprise not only the witness, but everybody present, when they were thus brought into comparison. My lord being prayed to bid my learned friend lay aside his wig, and giving no very gracious consent, the likeness became much more remarkable. My lord inquired of Mr. Striver, the prisoner's counsel, whether they were next to try Mr. Carton, name of my learned friend, for treason. But Mr. Striver replied to my lord, no, but he would ask the witness to tell him whether what happened once might happen twice, whether he would have been so confident if he had seen this illustration of his rashness sooner, whether he would be so confident having seen it, and more. The upshot of which was to smash this witness like a crockery vessel, and shiver his part of the case to useless lumber. Mr. Cruncher had by this time taken quite a lunch of rust off his fingers in his following of the evidence. He had now to attend, while Mr. Striver fitted the prisoner's case on the jury, like a compact suit of clothes, showing them how the patriot, Barsad, was a hired spy and traitor, an unblushing trafficker in blood, and one of the greatest scoundrels upon earth since accursed Judas, which he certainly did look rather like. 
how the virtuous servant cly was his friend and partner and was worthy to be how the watchful eyes of those forgers and false swearers had rested on the prisoner as a victim because some family affairs in france he being of french extraction did require his making those passages across the channel though what those affairs were a consideration for others who were near and dear to him forbade him even for his life to disclose how the evidence that had been warped and wrested from the young lady whose anguish in giving it they had witnessed came to nothing involving the mere little innocent gallantries and politenesses likely to pass between any young gentleman and young lady so thrown together with the exception of that reference to george washington which was altogether too extravagant and impossible to be regarded in any other light than as a monstrous joke how it would be a weakness in the government to break down in this attempt to practice for popularity on the lowest national antipathies and fears and therefore mr attorney-general had made the most of it how nevertheless it rested upon nothing save that vile and infamous character of evidence too often disfiguring such cases and of which the state trials of this country were full but there my lord interposed with as grave a face as if it had not been true saying that he could not sit upon that bench and suffer those allusions mr stryver then called his few witnesses and mr cruncher had next to attend while mr attorney-general turned the whole suit of clothes mr stryver had fitted on the jury inside out showing how barsard and cly were even a hundred times better than he had thought them and the prisoner a hundred times worse lastly came my lord himself turning the suit of clothes now inside out now outside in but on the whole decidedly trimming and shaping them into grave clothes for the prisoner and now the jury turned to consider and the great flies swarmed again mr carton who had so long sat looking at the ceiling of the court changed neither his place nor his attitude even in this excitement while his teamed friend mr stryver massing his papers before him whispered with those who sat near and from time to time glanced anxiously at the jury while all the spectators moved more or less and grouped themselves anew while even my lord himself rose from his seat and slowly paced up and down his platform not unattended by a suspicion in the minds of the audience that his state was feverish this one man sat leaning back with his torn gown half off him his untidy wig put on just as it had happened to fight on his head after its removal his hands in his pockets and his eyes on the ceiling as they had been all day something especially reckless in his demeanour not only gave him a disreputable look but so diminished the strong resemblance he undoubtedly bore to the prisoner which his momentary earnestness when they were compared together had strengthened that many of the lookers-on taking note of him now said to one another they would hardly have thought the two were so alike mr cruncher made the observation to his next neighbour and added i'd hold half a guinea that he don't get no law work to do don't look like the sort of one to get any do he 
Yet, this Mr. Carton took in more of the details of the scene than he appeared to take in, for now, when Miss Manette's head drooped upon her father's breast, he was the first to see it, and to say audibly, "'Officer, look to that young lady. Help the gentleman to take her out. Don't you see she will fall?' There was much commiseration for her as she was removed, and much sympathy with her father. It had evidently been a great distress to him to have the days of his imprisonment recalled. He had shown strong internal agitation when he was questioned, and that pondering or brooding look which made him old had been upon him like a heavy cloud ever since. As he passed out, the jury, who had turned back and paused a moment, spoke through their foreman. They were not agreed, and wished to retire. My lord, perhaps with George Washington on his mind, showed some surprise that they were not agreed, but signified his pleasure that they should retire under watch and ward, and retired himself. The trial had lasted all day, and the lamps in the court were now being lighted. It began to be rumoured that the jury would be out a long while. The spectators dropped off to get refreshment, and the prisoner withdrew to the back of the dock and sat down. Mr. Lorry, who had gone out when the young lady and her father went out, now reappeared and beckoned to Jerry, who, in the slackened interest, could easily get near him. "'Jerry, if you wish to take something to eat, you can, but keep in the way. You will be sure to hear when the jury come in. Don't be a moment behind them, for I want you to take the verdict back to the bank. You are the quickest messenger I know, and will get to Temple Bar long before I can.' Jerry had just enough forehead to knuckle, and he knuckled it in acknowledgment of this communication, and a shilling. Mr. Carton came up at the moment and touched Mr. Lorry on the arm. "'How is the young lady?' she is greatly distressed but her father is comforting her and she feels the better for being out of court i'll tell the prisoner so it won't do for a respectable bank gentleman like you to be seen speaking to him publicly you know mr lorry reddened as if he were conscious of having debated the point in his mind and mr carton made his way to the outside of the bar the way out of court lay in that direction and jerry followed him all eyes ears and spikes mr darnay the prisoner came forth directly you will naturally be anxious to hear of the witness miss manette she will do very well you have seen the worst of her agitation i am deeply sorry to have been the cause of it could you tell her so for me with my fervent acknowledgments yes i could i will if you ask it mr carton's manner was so careless as to be almost insolent he stood half turned from the prisoner lounging with his elbow against the bar i do ask it accept my cordial thanks what said carton still only half turned towards him do you expect mr darnay the worst it's the wisest thing to expect and the likeliest but i think their withdrawing is in your favour Loitering on the way out of court not being allowed, Jerry heard no more, but left them, so like each other in feature, so unlike each other in manner, standing side by side, both reflected in the glass above them. An hour and a half limped heavily away in the thief and rascal crowded passages below, even though assisted off with mutton pies and ale. 
the horse messenger uncomfortably seated on a form after taking that refection had dropped into a doze when a loud murmur and a rapid tide of people setting up the stairs that led to the court carried him along with them jerry jerry mr lorry was already calling at the door when he got there here sir it's a fight to get back again here i am sir mr lorry handed him a paper through the throng quick have you got it yes sir hastily written on the paper was the word acquitted if you had sent the message recalled to life again muttered jerry as he turned i should have known what you meant this time he had no opportunity of saying or so much as thinking anything else until he was clear of the old bailey for the crowd came pouring out with a vehemence that nearly took him off his legs and a loud buzz swept into the street as if the baffled blue flies were dispersing in search of other carrion end of book one chapter three recording by paul adams www.yawnguy.com Book Two, Chapter Four of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Four, Congratulatory. From the dimly lighted passages of the court, the last sediment of the human stew that had been boiling there all day was straining off when dr manette lucy manette his daughter mr lorry the solicitor for the defence and its counsel mr stryver stood gathered round mr charles darnay just released congratulating him on his escape from death it would have been difficult by a far brighter light to recognize in dr manette intellectual of face and upright of bearing the shoemaker of the garret in paris yet no one could have looked at him twice without looking again even though the opportunity of observation had not extended to the mournful cadence of his low grave voice and to the abstraction that clouded him fitfully without any apparent reason while one external cause and that a reference to his long lingering agony would always as on the trial evoke this condition from the depths of his soul it was also in its nature to arise of itself and to draw a gloom over him as incomprehensible to those unacquainted with his story as if they had seen the shadow of the actual bastille thrown upon him by a summer sun when the substance was three hundred miles away only his daughter had the power of charming this black brooding from his mind she was the golden thread that united him to a past beyond his misery and to a present beyond his misery and the sound of her voice the light of her face the touch of her hand had a strong beneficial influence with him almost always not absolutely always for she could recall some occasions on which her power had failed but they were few and slight and she believed them over mr darnay had kissed her hand fervently and gratefully and had turned to mr stryver whom he warmly thanked 
Mr. Stryver, a man of little more than thirty, but looking twenty years older than he was, stout, loud, red, bluff, and free from any drawback of delicacy, had a pushing way of shouldering himself, morally and physically, into companies and conversations that argued well for his shouldering his way up in life. He still had his wig and gown on, and he said, squaring himself at his late client to that degree that he squeezed the innocent Mr. Lorry clean out of the group, "'I'm glad to have brought you off with honour, Mr. Darnay. It was an infamous prosecution, grossly infamous, but not the less likely to succeed on that account. "'You have laid me under an obligation to you for life, in two senses,' said his late client, taking his hand." i have done my best for you mr darnay and my best is as good as another man's i believe it clearly being incumbent on some one to say much better mr lorry said it perhaps not quite disinterestedly but with the interested object of squeezing himself back again you think so said mr stryver well you have been present all day and you ought to know you are a man of business too and as such quoth mr lorry whom the counsel learned in the law had now shouldered back into the group just as he had previously shouldered him out of it as such i will appeal to dr manette to break up this conference and order us all to our homes miss lucy looks ill mr darnay has had a terrible day we're worn out speak for yourself mr lorry said stryver i have a night's work to do yet speak for yourself "'I speak for myself,' answered Mr. Lorry, "'and for Mr. Darnay, and for Miss Lucy, "'and, Miss Lucy, do you not think I may speak for us all?' "'He asked her the question pointedly, "'and with a glance at her father. "'His face had become frozen, as it were, "'in a very curious look at Darnay, "'an intent look, deepening into a frown of dislike and distrust, "'not even unmixed with fear.' with this strange expression on him his thoughts had wandered away my father said lucy softly laying her hand on his he slowly shook the shadow off and turned to her shall we go home my father with a long breath he answered yes the friends of the acquitted prisoner had dispersed under the impression which he himself had originated that he would not be released that night the lights were nearly all extinguished in the passages the iron gates were being closed with a jar and a rattle and the dismal place was deserted until to-morrow morning's interest of gallows pillory whipping-post and branding iron should repeople it Walking between her father and Mr. Darnay, Lucy Manette passed into the open air. A hackney-coach was called, and the father and daughter departed in it. Mr. Stryver had left them in the passages to shoulder his way back to the robing-room. Another person, who had not joined the group, or interchanged a word with any of them, but who had been leaning against the wall where its shadow was darkest, had silently strolled out after the rest, and had looked on until the coach drove away. He now stepped up to where Mr. Lorry and Mr. Darnay stood upon the pavement. "'So, Mr. Lorry, men of business may speak to Mr. Darnay now?' nobody had made any acknowledgment of mr carton's part in the day's proceedings nobody had known of it he was unrobed and was none the better for it in appearance 
If you knew what a conflict goes on in the business mind, when the business mind is divided between good-natured impulse and business appearances, you would be amused, Mr. Darnay. Mr. Lorry reddened and said warmly, You have mentioned that before, sir. We men of business who serve a house are not our own masters. We have to think of the house more than ourselves. I know, I know, rejoined Mr. Carton carelessly. Don't be nettled, Mr. Lorry. You are as good as another. I have no doubt. Better, I dare say. And indeed, sir, pursued Mr. Lorry, not minding him, I really don't know what you have to do with the matter. If you'll excuse me, as very much your elder, for saying so, I really don't know that it is your business. Business! Bless you! I have no business, said Mr. Carton. It is a pity you have not, sir. I think so, too. If you had, pursued Mr. Lorry, perhaps you would attend to it. Lord love you, no, I shouldn't, said Mr. Carton. "'Well, sir,' cried Mr. Lorry, thoroughly heated by his indifference, "'business is a very good thing, and a very respectable thing. "'And, sir, if business imposes its restraints, and its silences and impediments, "'Mr. Darnay, as a young gentleman of generosity, knows how to make allowance for that circumstance. "'Mr. Darnay, good night. God bless you, sir. "'I hope you have been this day preserved for a prosperous and happy life. "'Chair there!' Perhaps a little angry with himself, as well as with the barrister, Mr. Lorry bustled into the chair, and was carried off to Tellson's. Carton, who smelt of port wine, and did not appear to be quite sober, laughed then, and turned to Darnay. "'This is a strange chance that throws you and me together. This must be a strange night to you, standing alone here with your counterpart on these street-stones.' I hardly seem yet, returned Charles Darnay, to belong to this world again. I don't wonder at it. It's not so long since you were pretty far advanced on your way to another. You speak faintly. I begin to think I am faint. Then why the devil don't you dine? I dined myself, while those numbskulls were deliberating which world you should belong to, this or some other. Let me show you the nearest tavern to dine well at. Drawing his arm through his own, he took him down Ludgate Hill to Fleet Street, and so, up a covered way, into a tavern. Here they were shown into a little room, where Charles Darnay was soon recruiting his strength with a good plain dinner and good wine, while Carton sat opposite to him at the same table, with his separate bottle of port before him, and his fully half-insolent manner upon him. "'Do you feel yet that you belong to this terrestrial scheme again, Mr. Darnay? "'I'm frightfully confused regarding time and place, "'but I'm so far mended as to feel that. "'It must be an immense satisfaction.' "'He said it bitterly and filled up his glass again, which was a large one. "'As to me, the greatest desire I have is to forget that I belong to it. It has no good in it for me, except wine like this, nor I for it. So we are not much alike in that particular. Indeed, I begin to think we are not much alike in any particular, you and I. Confused by the emotion of the day, and feeling his being there with this double of coarse deportment to be like a dream, Charles Darnay was at a loss how to answer. Finally, answered not at all. 
now your dinner is done carton presently said why don't you call a health mr darnay why don't you give your toast what health what toast why it's on the tip of your tongue it ought to be it must be i swear it's there miss manette then miss manette then looking his companion full in the face while he drank the toast carton flung his glass over his shoulder against the wall where it shivered to pieces then rang the bell and ordered in another that's a fair young lady to hand to a coach in the dark mr darnay he said ruing his new goblet a slight frown and a laconic yes were the answer that's a fair young lady to be pitied by and wept for by how does it feel is it worth being tried for one's life to be the object of such sympathy and compassion mr darnay again darnay answered not a word she was mightily pleased to have your message when i gave it her not that she showed she was pleased but i suppose she was the allusion served as a timely reminder to Darnay that this disagreeable companion had, of his own free will, assisted him in the strait of the day. He turned the dialogue to that point and thanked him for it. "'I neither want any thanks nor merit any,' was the careless rejoinder. "'It was nothing to do in the first place, and I don't know why I did it. In the second, Mr. Darnay, let me ask you a question.' "'Willingly.' and a small return for your good offices. Do you think I particularly like you? Really, Mr. Carton, returned the other, oddly disconcerted, I have not asked myself the question, but ask yourself the question now. You have acted as if you do, but I don't think you do. I don't think I do, said Carton. I begin to have a very good opinion of your understanding." nevertheless pursued darnay rising to ring the bell there is nothing in that i hope to prevent my calling the reckoning and our parting without ill blood on either side carton rejoining nothing in life darnay rang do you call the whole reckoning said carton on his answering in the affirmative then bring me another pint of this same wine drawer and come and wake me at ten the bill being paid, Charles Darnay rose, and wished him good-night. Without returning the wish, Carton rose too, with something of a threat of defiance in his manner, and said, "'A last word, Mr. Darnay. You think I am drunk?' "'I think you have been drinking, Mr. Carton.' "'Think you know I have been drinking. Since I must say so, I know it. Then you shall likewise know why.' I am a disappointed drudge, sir. I care for no man on earth, and no man on earth cares for me. Much to be regretted. You might have used your talents better. Maybe so, Mr. Darnay, maybe not. Don't let your sober face elate you, however. You don't know what it may come to. Good night. When he was left alone, the strange being took up a candle, went to a glass that hung against the wall, and surveyed himself minutely in it. 
do you particularly like the man he muttered at his own image why should you particularly like a man who resembles you there is nothing in you to like you know that ah confound you what a change you have made in yourself a good reason for taking to a man that he shows you what you have fallen away from and what you might have been changed places with him and would you have been looked at by those blue eyes as he was and commiserated by that agitated face as he was come on and have it out in plain words you hate the fellow he resorted to his pint of wine for consolation drank it all in a few minutes and fell asleep on his arms with his hair straggling over the table and a long winding sheet in the candle dripping down upon him end of book two chapter four Recording by Paul Adams, www.yornguy.com Book 2, Chapter 5 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 5 The Jackal those were drinking days and most men drank hard so very great is the improvement time has brought about in such habits that a moderate statement of the quantity of wine and punch which one man would swallow in the course of a night without any detriment to his reputation as a perfect gentleman would seem in these days a ridiculous exaggeration the learned profession of the law was certainly not behind any other learned profession in its bacchanalian propensities neither was mr stryver already fast shouldering his way to a large and lucrative practice behind his compeers in this particular any more than in the drier part of the legal race a favourite at the old bailey and eke at the sessions mr stryver had begun cautiously to hew away the lower staves of the ladder on which he mounted sessions and old bailey had now to summon their favourite specially to their longing arms and shouldering itself towards the visage of the lord chief justice in the court of king's bench the florid countenance of mr stryver might be daily seen bursting out of the bed of wigs like a great sunflower pushing its way at the sun from among a rank garden full of flaring companions it had once been noted at the bar that while mr stryver was a glib man and an unscrupulous and a ready and a bold he had not that faculty of extracting the essence from a heap of statements which is among the most striking and necessary of the advocate's accomplishments but a remarkable improvement came upon him as to this the more business he got the greater his power seemed to grow of getting at its pith and marrow and however late at night he sat carousing with sidney carton he always had his points at his fingers ends in the morning sidney carton idlest and most unpromising of men was stryver's great ally what the two drank together between hilary term and michaelmas might have floated a king's ship 
Striver never had a case in hand anywhere, but Carton was there, with his hands in his pockets, staring at the ceiling of the court. They went the same circuit, and even there they prolonged their usual orgies late into the night, and Carton was rumoured to be seen at broad day going home stealthily and unsteadily to his lodgings like a dissipated cat. At last it began to get about, among such as were interested in the matter, that although Sidney Carton would never be a lion, he was an amazingly good jackal, and that he rendered suit and service to Striver in that humble capacity. Ten o'clock, sir,' said the man at the tavern, whom he had charged to wake him. Ten o'clock, sir.' "'What's the matter?' Ten o'clock, sir. What do you mean? Ten, ten o'clock at night?' "'Yes, sir, your honour told me to call you.' "'Oh, I remember. Very well, very well.' After a few dull efforts to get to sleep again, which the man dexterously combated by stirring the fire continuously for five minutes, he got up, tossed his hat on, and walked out. He turned into the temple, and, having revived himself by twice pacing the pavements of King's Bench Walk and paper buildings, turned into the Striver chambers. The Striver clerk, who never assisted at these conferences, had gone home, and the Striver principal opened the door. He had his slippers on, and a loose bedgown, and his throat was bare for his greater ease. He had that rather wild, strained, seared marking about the eyes, which may be observed in all free livers of his class, from the portrait of Jeffreys downwards, and which can be traced, under various disguises of art, through the portraits of every drinking age. "'You're a little late, memory,' said Striver. About the usual time, it may be a quarter of an hour later. They went into a dingy room lined with books and littered with papers, where there was a blazing fire. A kettle steamed upon the hob, and in the midst of the wreck of papers a table shone, with plenty of wine upon it, and brandy, and rum, and sugar, and lemons. "'You have had your bottle, I perceive, Sidney.' Two to-night, I think, I've been dining with the day's client, or seeing him dine, it's all one. That was a rare point, Sidney, that you brought to bear upon the identification. How did you come by it? When did it strike you? I thought he was rather a handsome fellow, and I thought I should have been much the same sort of fellow if I had had any luck. Mr. Stryver laughed till he shook his precocious paunch. "'You and your luck, Sidney! Get to work! Get to work!' Sullenly enough, the jackal loosened his dress, went into an adjoining room, and came back with a large jug of cold water, a basin, and a towel or two. Steeping the towels in the water, and partially wringing them out, he folded them on his head in a manner hideous to behold, sat down at the table, and said, "'Now I am ready!' "'Not much boiling down to be done to-night, memory,' said Mr. Striver, gaily, as he looked among his papers. "'How much?' "'Only two sets of them. Give me the worst first. There they are, Sidney. Fire away!' The lion then composed himself on his back on a sofa on one side of the drinking-table, while the jackal sat at his own paper-bestrewn table proper on the other side of it, with the bottles and glasses ready to his hand. Both resorted to the drinking-table without stint, but each in a different way, 
the lion for the most part reclining with his hands in his waistband, looking at the fire, or occasionally flirting with some lighter document. The jackal, with knitted brows and intent face, so deep in his task that his eyes did not even follow the hand he stretched out for his glass, which often groped about for a minute or more before it found the glass for his lips. Two or three times the matter in hand became so knotty that the jackal found it imperative on him to get up and steep his towels anew. From these pilgrimages to the jug and basin he returned with such eccentricities of damp headgear as no words can describe, which were made the more ludicrous by his anxious gravity. At length the jackal had got together a compact repast for the lion, and proceeded to offer it to him. The lion took it with care and caution, made his selections from it, and his remarks upon it, and the jackal assisted both. When the repast was fully discussed, the lion put his hands in his waistband again, and lay down to meditate. The jackal then invigorated himself with a bum for his throttle, and a fresh application to his head, and applied himself to the collection of a second meal. This was administered to the lion in the same manner, and was not disposed of until the clock struck three in the morning. "'And now we have done, Sidney. Fill a bumper of punch,' said Mr. Stryver. The jackal removed the towels from his head, which had been steaming again, shook himself, yawned, shivered, and complied. "'You were very sound, Sidney, in the matter of those crown witnesses to-day. Every question told.' "'I always am sound, am I not? I don't gainsay it. What has roughened your temper? Put some punch to it and smooth it again.' With a deprecatory grunt, the jackal again complied. "'The old Sidney Carton of old Shrewsbury School,' said Stryver, nodding his head over him as he reviewed him in the present and the past, "'the old seesaw Sidney, up one minute and down the next, now in spirits and now in despondency.' "'Ah!' returned the other, sighing, "'yes, the same Sidney with the same luck.' Even then I did exercises for other boys, and seldom did my own. And why not? God knows. It was my way, I suppose. He sat with his hands in his pockets, and his legs stretched out before him, looking at the fire. Carton, said his friend, squaring himself at him with a bullying air, as if the fire-grate had been the furnace in which sustained endeavour was forged, and the one delicate thing to be done for the old Sidney Carton of old Shrewsbury School was to shoulder him into it. Your way is, and always was, a lame way. You summon no energy and purpose. Look at me!' "'Oh, botheration!' returned Sidney, with a lighter and more good-humoured laugh. "'Don't you be moral!' "'How have I done what I have done?' said Stryver. "'How do I do what I do?' "'Partly through paying me to help you, I suppose. "'But it's not worth your while to apostrophise me, or the air, about it. "'What you want to do, you do. "'You were always in the front rank, and I was always behind.' I had to get into the front rank. I was not born there, was I? I was not present at the ceremony, but my opinion is you were, said Carton. At this he laughed again, and they both laughed. Before Shrewsbury, and at Shrewsbury, and ever since Shrewsbury, pursued Carton, you have fallen into your rank, and I have fallen into mine. 
even when we were fellow students in the student quarter of paris picking up french and french law and other french crumbs that we didn't get much good of you were always somewhere and i was always nowhere and whose fault was that upon my soul i'm not sure that it was not yours you were always driving and writhing and shouldering and passing to that restless degree that i had no chance for my life but in rust and repose it's a gloomy thing however to talk about one's own past with the day breaking turn me in some other direction before i go well then pledge me to the pretty witness said stryver holding up his glass are you turned in a pleasant direction apparently not for he became gloomy again pretty witness he muttered looking down into his glass i've had enough of witnesses to-day and to-night who's your pretty witness the picturesque doctor's daughter miss manette she pretty is she not no why man alive she was the admiration of the whole court rot the admiration of the whole court who made the old bailey a judge of beauty she was a golden-haired doll do you know sydney said mr stryver looking at him with sharp eyes and slowly drawing a hand across his florid face do you know i rather thought at the time that you sympathized with the golden-haired doll and were quick to see what happened to the golden-haired doll quick to see what happened if a girl doll or no doll swoons within a yard or two of a man's nose he can see it without a perspective glass i pledge you but i deny the beauty and now i'll have no more drink i'll get to bed when his host followed him out on the staircase with a candle to light him down the stairs the day was coldly looking in through its grimy windows when he got out of the house the air was cold and sad the dull sky overcast the river dark and dim the whole scene like a lifeless desert and wreaths of dust were spinning round and round before the morning blast as if the desert sand had risen far away and the first spray of it in its advance had begun to overwhelm the city waste forces within him and a desert all around this man stood still on his way across a silent terrace and saw for a moment lying in the wilderness before him a mirage of honourable ambition self-denial and perseverance in the fair city of this vision there were airy galleries from which the loves and graces looked upon him gardens in which the fruits of life hung ripening waters of hope that sparkled in his sight a moment and it was gone climbing to a high chamber in a well of houses he threw himself down in his clothes on a neglected bed and its pillow was wet with wasted tears sadly sadly the sun rose it rose upon no sadder sight than the man of good abilities and good emotions incapable of their directed exercise incapable of his own help and his own happiness sensible of the blight on him and resigning himself to let it eat him away End of Book 2, Chapter 5, recording by Paul Adams, www.yongai.com.
Book Two, Chapter Six of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Six Hundreds of People. The quiet lodgings of Dr. Manette were in a quiet street corner not far from Soho Square. On the afternoon of a certain fine Sunday, when the waves of four months had rolled over the trial for treason, and carried it, as to the public interest and memory, far out to sea, Mr. Jarvis Lorry walked along the sunny streets, from Clerkenwell where he lived, on his way to dine with the doctor. After several relapses into business absorption, Mr. Lorry had become the doctor's friend, and the quiet street corner was the sunny part of his life. On this certain fine Sunday, Mr. Lorry walked towards Soho, early in the afternoon, for three reasons of habit. Firstly, because on fine Sundays he often walked out, before dinner, with the doctor and Lucy. Secondly, because on unfavourable Sundays he was accustomed to be with them as the family friend, talking, reading, looking out of window, and generally getting through the day thirdly because he happened to have his own little shrewd doubts to solve and knew how the ways of the doctor's household pointed to that time as a likely time for solving them a quainter corner than the corner where the doctor lived was not to be found in london there was no way through it and the front windows of the doctor's lodgings commanded a pleasant little vista of street that had a congenial air of retirement on it there were few buildings then north of the oxford road and forest trees flourished and wild flowers grew and the hawthorn blossomed in the now vanished fields as a consequence country airs circulated in soho with vigorous freedom instead of languishing into the parish like stray paupers without a settlement and there was many a good south wall not far off on which the peaches ripened in their season the summer light struck into the corner brilliantly in the early part of the day but when the streets grew hot the corner was in shadow though not in shadow so remote but that you could see beyond it into a glare of brightness it was a cool spot staid but cheerful a wonderful place for echoes and a very harbour from the raging streets there ought to have been a tranquil bark in such an anchorage and there was the doctor occupied two floors of a large stiff house where several callings purported to be pursued by day but whereof little was audible any day and which was shunned by all of them at night in a building at the back attainable by a courtyard where a plane tree rustled its green leaves church organs claimed to be made and silver to be chased and likewise gold to be beaten by some mysterious giant who had a golden arm starting out of the wall of the front hall as if he had beaten himself precious and menaced a similar conversion of all visitors a very little of these trades or of a lonely lodger rumoured to live upstairs or of a dim coach-trimming maker asserted to have a counting-house below was ever heard or seen occasionally a stray workman putting his coat on traversed the hall or a stranger peered about there or a distant clink was heard across the courtyard or a thump from the golden giant 
These, however, were only the exceptions required to prove the rule, that the sparrows in the plane-tree behind the house, and the echoes in the corner before it, had their own way from Sunday morning unto Saturday night. Dr. Manette received such patience here as his old reputation, and its revival in the floating whispers of his story, brought him. His scientific knowledge, and his vigilance and skill in conducting ingenious experiments, brought him otherwise into moderate request, and he earned as much as he wanted. These things were within Mr. Jarvis Lorry's knowledge, thoughts, and notice, when he rang the doorbell of the tranquil house in the corner on the fine Sunday afternoon. Dr. Manette at home? Expected home. Miss Lucy at home? expected home. Miss Pross at home? Possibly at home, but of a certainty impossible for handmaid to anticipate intentions of Miss Pross as to admission or denial of the fact. As I am at home myself, said Miss Lorry, I'll go upstairs. Although the doctor's daughter had known nothing of the country of her birth, she appeared to have innately derived from it that ability to make much of little means, which is one of its most useful and most agreeable characteristics. Simple as the furniture was, it was set off by so many little adornments, of no value but for their taste and fancy, that its effect was delightful. The disposition of everything in the rooms, from the largest object to the least, the arrangement of colours, the elegant variety and contrast obtained by thrift in trifles, by delicate hands, clear eyes, and good sense, were at once so pleasant in themselves, and so expressive of their originator, that, as Mr. Lorry stood looking about him, the very chairs and tables seemed to ask him, with something of that peculiar expression which he knew so well by this time, whether he approved. There were three rooms on a floor, and the doors by which they communicated being put open, that the air might pass freely through them all, Mr. Lorry, smilingly observant of that fanciful resemblance which he detected all around him, walked from one to another. The first was the best room, and in it were Lucy's birds, and flowers, and books, and desk, and work-table, and box of water-colours. The second was the doctor's consulting-room, used also as the dining-room. The third, changingly speckled by the rustle of the plane-tree in the yard, was the doctor's bedroom, and there, in a corner, stood the disused shoemaker's bench and tray of tools, much as it had stood on the fifth floor of the dismal house by the wine-shop in the suburb of Saint-Antoine in Paris. I wonder, said Mr. Lorry, pausing in his looking about, that he keeps that reminder of his sufferings about him. And why wonder at that? was the abrupt inquiry that made him start. It proceeded from Miss Pross, the wild red woman, strong of hand, whose acquaintance he had first made at the Royal George Hotel at Dover, and had since improved. I should have thought, Mr. Lorry began, pooh! You would have thought, said Miss Pross. Mr. Lorry left off. "'How do you do?' inquired that lady then, sharply, and yet as if to express that she bore him no malice. "'I am pretty well, I thank you,' answered Mr. Lorry, with meekness. "'How are you?' "'Nothing to boast of,' said Miss Pross. "'Indeed? Ah, indeed,' said Miss Pross. 
I am very much put out about my ladybird, indeed. For gracious sake, say something else besides indeed, or you'll fidget me to death, said Miss Pross, whose character, dissociated from stature, was shortness. Really, then, said Mr. Lorry, as an amendment, Really, it's bad enough, returned Miss Pross, but better. Yes, I'm very much put out. May I ask the cause? I don't want dozens of people who are not at all worthy of Ladybird to come here looking after her, said Miss Pross. Do dozens come here for that purpose? Hundreds, said Miss Pross. It was characteristic of this lady, as of some other people before her time and since, that whenever her original proposition was questioned, she exaggerated it. "'Dear me,' said Mr. Lorry, as the safest remark he could think of, "'I have lived with the darling, or the darling has lived with me, and paid me for it, which she certainly should never have done. You may take your affidavit, if I could have afforded to keep either myself or her for nothing, since she was ten years old. And it's really very hard,' said Miss Pross. Not seeing with precision what was very hard, Mr. Lorry shook his head using that important part of himself as a sort of fairy cloak that would fit anything all sorts of people who are not in the least degree worthy of the pet are always turning up said miss pross when you began it i began it miss pross didn't you who brought her father to life oh if that was the beginning of it said mr lorry it wasn't ending it, I suppose. I say, when you begin it, it was hard enough. Not that I have any fault to find with Dr. Manette, except that he is not worthy of such a daughter, which is no imputation on him, for it was not to be expected that anybody should be under any circumstances. But it really is doubly and trebly hard to have crowds and multitudes of people turning up after him, I could have forgiven him, to take Lady Bird's affections away from me. Mr. Lorry knew Miss Pross to be very jealous, but he also knew her by this time to be, beneath the service of her eccentricity, one of those unselfish creatures, found only among women, who will, for pure love and admiration, bind themselves willing slaves to youth when they have lost it, to beauty that they never had to accomplishments that they were never fortunate enough to gain, to bright hopes that never shone upon their own sombre lives. He knew enough of the world to know that there is nothing in it better than the faithful service of the heart, so rendered and so free from any mercenary taint. He had such an exalted respect for it, that in the retributive arrangements made by his own mind, we all make such arrangements, more or less, he stationed Miss Pross much nearer to the lower angels than many ladies immeasurably better got up, both by nature and art, who had balances at Telson's. "'There never was, nor will be, but one man worthy of Ladybird,' said Miss Pross, "'and that was my brother Solomon, if he hadn't made a mistake in life.' Here again Mr. Lorry's inquiries into Miss Pross's personal history had established the fact that her brother Solomon was a heartless scoundrel who had stripped her of everything she possessed as a stake to speculate with and had abandoned her in her poverty for evermore, with no touch of compunction. 
Miss Pross's fidelity of belief in Solomon, deducting a mere trifle for this slight mistake, was quite a serious matter with Mr. Lorry, and had its weight in his good opinion of her. "'As we happen to be alone for the moment, and are both people of business,' he said, when they had got back to the drawing-room, and had sat down there in friendly relations, "'let me ask you, does the doctor, in talking with Lucy, never refer to the shoemaking time yet?' "'Never. And yet keeps that bench and those tools beside him?' ah returned miss pross shaking her head but i don't say he don't refer to it within himself do you believe that he thinks of it much i do said miss pross do you imagine mr lorry had begun when miss pross took him up short with never imagine anything have no imagination at all i stand corrected do you suppose you go so far as to suppose sometimes now and then said miss pross do you suppose mr lorry went on with a laughing twinkle in his bright eye as it looked kindly at her that dr manette has any theory of his own preserved through all those years relative to the cause of his being so oppressed perhaps even to the name of his oppressor i don't suppose anything about it but what ladybird tells me and that is that she thinks he has now don't be angry at my asking all these questions because i am a mere dull man of business and you are a woman of business dull miss pross inquired with placidity rather wishing his modest adjective away mr lorry replied no 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 surely not to return to business is it not remarkable that dr manette unquestionably innocent of any crime as we are all well assured he is should never touch upon that question i will not say with me though he had business relations with me many years ago and we are now intimate i will say with the fair daughter to whom he is so devotedly attached and who is so devotedly attached to him believe me miss pross i don't approach the topic with you out of curiosity but out of zealous interest well to the best of my understanding and bad's the best you'll tell me said miss pross softened by the tone of the apology he is afraid of the whole subject afraid it's plain enough i should think why he may be it's a dreadful remembrance besides that his loss of himself grew out of it not knowing how he lost himself or how he recovered himself he may never feel certain of not losing himself again that alone wouldn't make the subject pleasant i should think it was a profounder remark than mr lorry had looked for true said he and fearful to reflect upon yet a doubt lurks in my mind miss pross whether it is good for dr manette to have that suppression always shut up within him indeed it is this doubt and the uneasiness it sometimes causes me that has led me to our present confidence can't be helped said miss pross shaking her head touch that string and he instantly changes for the worse better leave it alone in short must leave it alone like or no like sometimes he gets up in the dead of the night and will be heard by us overhead here walking up and down walking up and down in his room lady bird has learnt to know then that his mind is walking up and down walking up and down in his old prison she hurries to him and they go on together walking up and down walking up and down until he is composed 
but he never says a word of the true reason of his restlessness to her and she finds it best not to hint at it to him in silence they go walking up and down together walking up and down together till her love and company have brought him to himself notwithstanding miss pross's denial of her own imagination there was a perception of the pain of being monotonously haunted by one sad idea in her repetition of the phrase walking up and down which testified to her possessing such a thing the corner has been mentioned as a wonderful corner for echoes it had begun to echo so resoundingly to the tread of coming feet that it seemed as though the very mention of that weary pacing to and fro had set it going here they are said miss pross rising to break up the conference and now we shall have hundreds of people pretty soon it was such a curious corner in its acoustical properties such a peculiar ear of a place that as mr lorry stood at the open window looking for the father and daughter whose steps he heard he fancied they would never approach not only would the echoes die away as though the steps had gone but echoes of other steps that never came would be heard in their stead and would die away for good when they seemed close at hand However, father and daughter did at last appear, and Miss Pross was ready at the street door to receive them. Miss Pross was a pleasant sight, albeit wild and red and grim, taking off her darling's bonnet when she came upstairs, and touching it up with the ends of her handkerchief, and blowing the dust off it, and folding her mantle ready for laying by, and smoothing her rich hair with as much pride as she could possibly have taken in her own hair, if she had been the vainest and handsomest of women her darling was a pleasant sight too embracing her and thanking her and protesting against her taking so much trouble for her which last she only dared to do playfully or miss pross sorely hurt would have retired to her own chamber and cried the doctor was a pleasant sight too looking on at them and telling miss pross how she spoilt lucy in accents and with eyes that had as much spoiling in them as miss pross had and would have had more if it were possible mr lorry was a pleasant sight too beaming at all this in his little wig and thanking his bachelor stars for having lighted him in his declining years to a home but no hundreds of people came to see the sights and mr lorry looked in vain for the fulfilment of miss pross's prediction dinner-time and still no hundreds of people in the arrangements of the little household miss pross took charge of the lower regions and always acquitted herself marvellously her dinners of a very modest quality were so well cooked and so well served and so neat in their contrivances half english and half french that nothing could be better miss pross's friendship being of the thoroughly practical kind she had ravaged soho and the adjacent provinces in search of impoverished french who tempted by shillings and half-crowns would impart culinary mysteries to her from these decayed sons and daughters of gaul she had acquired such wonderful arts that the woman and girl who formed the staff of domestics regarded her as quite a sorceress or cinderella's godmother who would send out for a fowl a rabbit a vegetable or two from the garden and change them into anything she pleased 
On Sundays Miss Pross dined at the doctor's table, but on other days persisted in taking her meals at unknown periods, either in the lower regions or in her own room on the second floor, a blue chamber to which no one but her ladybird ever gained admittance. On this occasion Miss Pross, responding to Ladybird's pleasant face and pleasant efforts to please her, unbent exceedingly, so the dinner was very pleasant, too. It was an oppressive day, and, after dinner, Lucy proposed that the wine should be carried out under the plane-tree, and they should sit there in the air. As everything turned upon her and revolved about her, they went out under the plane-tree, and she carried the wine down for the special benefit of Mr. Lorry. She had installed herself some time before as Mr. Lorry's cup-bearer, and while they sat under the plane-tree talking, she kept his glass replenished. Mysterious backs and ends of houses peeped at them as they talked, and the plane-tree whispered to them in its own way above their heads. Still, the hundreds of people did not present themselves. Mr. Darnay presented himself while they were sitting under the plane-tree, but he was only one. Dr. Manette received him kindly, and so did Lucy but miss pross suddenly became affected with a twitching in the head and body and retired into the house she was not unfrequently the victim of this disorder and she called it in familiar conversation a fit of the jerks the doctor was in his best condition and looked specially young the resemblance between him and lucy was very strong at such times and as they sat side by side she leaning on his shoulder and he resting his arm on the back of her chair it was very agreeable to trace the likeness he had been talking all day on many subjects and with unusual vivacity pray dr manette said mr darnay as they sat under the plane-tree and he said it in the natural pursuit of the topic in hand which happened to be the old buildings of london have you seen much of the tower lucy and i have been there but only casually we have seen enough of it to know that it teems with interest little more i have been there as you remember said darnay with a smile though reddening a little angrily in another character and not in a character that gives facilities for seeing much of it they told me a curious thing when i was there what was that lucy asked in making some alterations the workmen came upon an old dungeon which had been for many years built up and forgotten every stone of its inner wall was covered by inscriptions which had been carved by prisoners dates names complaints and prayers upon a cornerstone in an angle of the wall one prisoner who seemed to have gone to execution had cut as his last work three letters they were done with some very poor instrument and hurriedly with an unsteady hand at first they were read as d i c but on being more carefully examined the last letter was found to be g there was no record or legend of any prisoner with those initials and many fruitless guesses were made what the name could have been at length it was suggested that the letters were not initials but the complete word dig 
The floor was examined very carefully under the inscription, and in the earth beneath a stone, or tile, or some fragment of paving, were found the ashes of a paper, mingled with the ashes of a small leathern case or bag. What the unknown prisoner had written will never be read, but he had written something, and hidden it away to keep it from the jailer. "'My father!' exclaimed Yusi. "'You are ill!' He had suddenly started up with his hand to his head. His manner and his look quite terrified them all. "'No, my dear, not, not ill. There are large drops of rain falling, and they made me start. We had better go in.' He recovered himself almost instantly. Rain was really falling in large drops, and he showed the back of his hand with raindrops on it. But he said not a single word in reference to the discovery that had been told of, and, as they went into the house, the business eye of Mr. Lorry either detected, or fancied it detected, on his face, as it turned toward Charles Darnay, the same singular look that had been upon it when it turned towards him in the passages of the courthouse. He recovered himself so quickly, however, that Mr. Lorry had doubts of his business eye. The arm of the golden giant in the hall was not more steady than he was, when he stopped under it to remark to them that he was not yet proof against slight surprises, if he ever would be, and that the rain had startled him. Tea-time, and Miss Pross making tea, with another fit of the jerks upon her, and yet no hundreds of people. Mr. Carton had lounged in, but he made only two. The night was so very sultry that although they sat with doors and windows open, they were overpowered by heat. When the tea-table was done with, they all moved to one of the windows, and looked out into the heavy twilight. Lucy sat by her father. Darnay sat beside her. Carton leaned against a window. The curtains were long and white, and some of the thunder-gusts that whirled into the corner caught them up to the ceiling and waved them like spectral wings. "'The raindrops are still falling, large, heavy, and few,' said Dr. Manette. "'It comes slowly.' "'It comes surely,' said Carton. They spoke low, as people watching and waiting mostly do, as people in a dark room watching and waiting for lightning always do. There was a great hurry in the streets of people speeding away to get shelter before the storm broke. The wonderful corner for echoes resounded with the echoes of footsteps coming and going, yet not a footstep was there. "'A multitude of people, and yet a solitude,' said Darnay, when they had listened for a while. "'Is it not impressive, Mr. Darnay?' asked Lucy. "'Sometimes I have sat here of an evening until I have fancied, but even the shade of a foolish fancy makes me shudder to-night, when all is so black and solemn.' "'Let us shudder, too. We may know what it is.' it will seem nothing to you such whims are only impressive as we originate them i think they are not to be communicated i have sometimes sat alone here of an evening listening until i have made the echoes out to be the echoes of all the footsteps that are coming by and by into our lives there is a great crowd coming one day into our lives if that be so sidney carton struck in in his moody way 
The footsteps were incessant, and the hurry of them became more and more rapid. The corner echoed and re-echoed with the tread of feet, some as it seemed under the windows, some as it seemed in the room, some coming, some going, some breaking off, some stopping altogether, all in the distant streets, and not one within sight. "'Are all these footsteps destined to come to all of us, Miss Manette, or are we to divide them among us?' "'I don't know, Mr. Darnay. I told you it was a foolish fancy, but you asked for it. When I have yielded myself to it, I have been alone, and then I have imagined them the footsteps of the people who are to come into my life and my father's.' "'I take them into mine,' said Carton. "'I ask no questions and make no stipulations. "'There is a great crowd bearing down upon us, Miss Manette, "'and I see them by the lightning.' "'He added the last words after there had been a vivid flash "'which had shown him lounging in the window. "'And I hear them,' he added again after a peal of thunder. "'Here they come, fast, fierce, and furious.' It was the rush and roar of rain that he typified, and it stopped him, for no voice could be heard in it. A memorable storm of thunder and lightning broke with that sweep of water, and there was not a moment's interval in crash and fire and rain until the moon rose at midnight. The great bell of St. Paul's was striking one in the cleared air, when Mr. Lorry, escorted by Jerry, high-booted and bearing a lantern, set forth on his return passage to Clerkenwell. There were solitary patches of road on the way between Soho and Clerkenwell, and Mr. Lorry, mindful of footpads, always retained Jerry for this service, though it was usually performed a good two hours earlier. "'What a night it has been! Almost a night, Jerry,' said Mr. Lorry, "'to bring the dead out of their graves.' "'I never see the night myself, Master, nor yet I don't expect to. "'What would do that?' answered Jerry. "'Good night, Mr. Carton,' said the man of business. "'Good night, Mr. Darnay. Shall we ever see such a night again together?' "'Perhaps. Perhaps see the great crowd of people with its rush and roar bearing down upon them too. End of Book Two, Chapter Six, recording by Paul Adams, www.yornguy.com. Book Two, Chapter Seven of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Seven, Monseigneur in Town. Monseigneur, one of the great lords in power at the court, held his fortnightly reception in his grand hotel in Paris. Monseigneur was in his inner room, his sanctuary of sanctuaries, the holiest of holiests, to the crowd of worshippers in the suite of rooms without. Monseigneur was about to take his chocolate. Monseigneur could swallow a great many things with ease, and was by some few sullen minds supposed to be rather rapidly swallowing France but his morning's chocolate could not so much as get into the throat of monseigneur without the aid of four strong men besides the cook 
Yes, it took four men, all four ablaze with gorgeous decoration, and the chief of them unable to exist with fewer than two gold watches in his pocket, emulative of the noble and chaste fashion set by Monseigneur, to conduct the happy chocolate to Monseigneur's lips. One lackey carried the chocolate pot into the sacred presence, a second milled and frothed the chocolate with the little instrument he bore for that function, a third presented the favoured napkin, a fourth, he of the two gold watches, poured the chocolate out. It was impossible for Monseigneur to dispense with one of these attendants on the chocolate and hold his high place under the admiring heavens. Deep would have been the blot upon his escutcheon if his chocolate had been ignobly waited on by only three men. He must have died of two. Monseigneur had been out at a little supper last night, where the comedy and the grand opera were charmingly represented. Monseigneur was out at a little supper most nights, with fascinating company. So polite and so impressible was Monseigneur, that the comedy and the grand opera had far more influence with him in the tiresome articles of state affairs and state secrets than the needs of all France. A happy circumstance for France, as the like always is for all countries similarly favoured, always was for England, by way of example, in the regretted days of the merry Stuart, who sold it. Monseigneur had one truly noble idea of general public business, which was to let everything go on in its own way. Of particular public business, Monseigneur had the other truly noble idea, that it must all go his way, tend to his own power and pocket. Of his pleasures, general and particular, Monseigneur had the other truly noble idea, that the world was made for them. The text of his order, altered from the original by only a pronoun, which is not much, ran, The earth and the fullness thereof are mine, saith Monseigneur. Yet, Monseigneur had slowly found that vulgar embarrassments crept into his affairs, both private and public, and he had, as to both classes of affairs, allied himself perforce with a farmer-general, as to finances public because monseigneur could not make anything at all of them and must consequently let them out to somebody who could as to finances private because farmers-general were rich and monseigneur after generations of great luxury and expense was growing poor Hence, Monseigneur had taken his sister from a convent. While there was yet time to ward off the impending veil, the cheapest garment she could wear, and had bestowed her as a prize upon a very rich farmer-general, poor in family. Which farmer-general, carrying an appropriate cane with a golden apple on the top of it, was now among the company in the outer rooms, much prostrated before by mankind, always excepting superior mankind of the blood of Monseigneur, who, his own wife included, looked down upon him with the loftiest contempt. A sumptuous man was the farmer-general. Thirty horses stood in his stables, twenty-four male domestics sat in his halls, six body-women waited on his wife. 
As one who pretended to do nothing but plunder and forage where he could, the farmer-general, howsoever his matrimonial relations conduced to social morality, was at least the greatest reality among the personages who attended at the hotel of Monseigneur that day for the rooms though a beautiful scene to look at and adorned with every device of decoration that the taste and skill of the time could achieve were in truth not a sound business considered with any reference to the scarecrows in the rags and nightcaps elsewhere and not so far off either but that the watching towers of notre dame almost equidistant from the two extremes could see them both they would have been an exceedingly uncomfortable business if that could have been anybody's business at the house of monseigneur military officers destitute of military knowledge naval officers with no idea of a ship civil officers without a notion of affairs brazen ecclesiastics of the worst world worldly with sensual eyes loose tongues and looser lives all totally unfit for their several callings all lying horribly in pretending to belong to them but all nearly or remotely of the order of monseigneur and therefore foisted on all public employments from which anything was to be got these were to be told off by the score and the score people not immediately connected with monseigneur or the state yet equally unconnected with anything that was real or with lives passed in travelling by any straight road to any true earthly end were no less abundant doctors who made great fortunes out of dainty remedies for imaginary disorders that never existed smiled upon their courtly patients in the antechambers of monseigneur projectors who had discovered every kind of remedy for the little evils with which the state was touched except the remedy of setting to work in earnest to root out a single sin poured their distracting babble into any ears they could lay hold of at the reception of monseigneur unbelieving philosophers who were remodelling the world with words and making card towers of babel to scale the skies with talked with unbelieving chemists who had an eye on the transmutation of metals at this wonderful gathering accumulated by monseigneur exquisite gentlemen of the finest breeding which was at that remarkable time and has been since to be known by its fruits of indifference to every natural subject of human interest were in the most exemplary state of exhaustion at the hotel of monseigneur such homes had these various notabilities left behind them in the fine world of paris that the spies among the assembled devotees of monseigneur forming a goodly half of the polite company would have found it hard to discover among the angels of that sphere one solitary wife who in her manners and appearance owned to being a mother indeed except for the mere act of bringing a troublesome creature into the world which does not go far towards the realization of the name of mother there was no such thing known to the fashion peasant women kept the unfashionable babies close and brought them up and charming grandmamas of sixty dressed and supped as at twenty the leprosy of unreality disfigured every human creature 
in attendance upon Monseigneur. In the outermost room were half a dozen exceptional people who had had for a few years some vague misgivings in them that things in general were going rather wrong. As a promising way of setting them right, half of the half-dozen had become members of a fantastic sect of convulsionists, and were even then considering within themselves whether they should foam, rage, roar, and turn cataleptic on the spot, thereby setting up a highly intelligible finger-post to the future, for Monseigneur's guidance. Besides these dervishes were other three, who had rushed into another sect, which mended matters with a jargon about the centre of truth. Holding that man had got out of the centre of truth, which did not need much demonstration, but had not got out of the circumference, and that he was to be kept from flying out of the circumference, and was even to be shoved back into the centre by fasting and seeing of spirits. Amongst these, accordingly, much discoursing with spirits went on, and it did a world of good which never became manifest. But the comfort was that all the company at the Grand Hotel of Monseigneur were perfectly dressed. If the day of judgment had only been ascertained to be a dress day, everybody there would have been eternally correct. Such frizzling and powdering and sticking up of hair, such delicate complexions artificially preserved and mended, such gallant swords to look at, and such delicate honour to the sense of smell, would surely keep anything going for ever and ever. The exquisite gentlemen of the finest breeding wore little pendant trinkets that chinked as they languidly moved. These golden fetters rang like precious little bells, and what with that ringing, and with the rustle of silk and brocade and fine linen, there was a flutter in the air that fanned Saint Antoine and his devouring hunger far away. Dress was the one unfailing talisman and charm used for keeping all things in their places. Everybody was dressed for a fancy ball that was never to leave off. From the palace of the Tuileries, through Monseigneur and the whole court, through the chambers, the tribunals of justice, and all society except the scarecrows, the fancy ball descended to the common executioner who in pursuance of the charm was required to officiate frizzled powdered in a gold-laced coat pumps and white silk stockings at the gallows and the wheel the axe was a rarity monsieur parry as it was the episcopal mode among his brother's professors of the provinces monsieur orleans and the rest to call him presided in this dainty dress and who among the company at monseigneur's reception in that seventeen hundred and eightieth year of our lord could possibly doubt that a system rooted in a frizzled hangman powdered gold-laced pumped and white silk stockinged would see the very stars out monseigneur having eased his four men of their burdens and taken his chocolate caused the doors of the holiest of holiests to be thrown open and issued forth then what submission what cringing and fawning what servility what abject humiliation 
as to bowing down in body and spirit nothing in that way was left for heaven which may have been among other reasons why the worshippers of monseigneur never troubled it bestowing a word of promise here and a smile there a whisper on one happy slave and a wave of the hand on another monseigneur affably passed through his rooms to the remote region of the circumference of truth there monseigneur turned and came back again and so in due course of time got himself shut up in his sanctuary by the chocolate sprites and was seen no more the show being over the flutter in the air became quite a little storm and the precious little bells went ringing downstairs there was soon but one person left of all the crowd and he with his hat under his arm and his snuff-box in his hand slowly passed among the mirrors on his way out i devote you said this person stopping at the last door on his way and turning in the direction of the sanctuary to the devil with that he shook the snuff from his fingers as if he had shaken the dust from his feet and quietly walked downstairs he was a man of about sixty handsomely dressed haughty in manner and with a face like a fine mask a face of a transparent paleness every feature in it clearly defined one set expression on it the nose beautifully formed otherwise was very slightly pinched at the top of each nostril in those two compressions or dints the only little change that the face ever showed resided they persisted in changing colour sometimes and they would be occasionally dilated and contracted by something like a faint pulsation then they gave a look of treachery and cruelty to the whole countenance examined with attention its capacity of helping such a look was to be found in the line of the mouth and the lines of the orbits of the eyes being much too horizontal and thin still in the effect of the face made it was a handsome face and a remarkable one its owner went downstairs into the courtyard got into his carriage and drove away not many people had talked with him at the reception he had stood in a little space apart and monseigneur might have been warmer in his manner it appeared under the circumstances rather agreeable to him to see the common people dispersed before his horses and often barely escaping from being run down his man drove as if he were charging an enemy and the furious recklessness of the man brought no check into the face or to the lips of the master the complaint had sometimes made itself audible even in that deaf city and dumb age that in the narrow streets without footways the fierce patrician custom of hard driving endangered and maimed the mere vulgar in a barbarous manner but few cared enough for that to think of it a second time and in this matter as in all others the common wretches were left to get out of their difficulties as they could with a wild rattle and clatter and an inhuman abandonment of consideration not easy to be understood in these days the carriage dashed through streets and swept round corners with women screaming before it and men clutching each other and clutching children out of its way at last swooping at a street corner by a fountain one of its wheels came to a sickening little jolt and there was a loud cry from a number of voices and the horses reared and plunged
but for the latter inconvenience the carriage probably would not have stopped carriages were often known to drive on and leave their wounded behind and why not but the frightened valet had got down in a hurry and there were twenty hands at the horse's bridles what has gone wrong said monsieur calmly looking out a tall man in a nightcap had caught up a bundle from among the feet of the horses and had laid it on the basement of the fountain and was down in the mud and wet howling over it like a wild animal pardon monsieur the marquis said a ragged and submissive man it is a child why does he make that abominable noise is it his child excuse me monsieur the marquis it is a pity yes the fountain was a little removed, for the street opened, where it was, into a space some ten or twelve yards square. As the tall man suddenly got up from the ground, and came running at the carriage, Monsieur the Marquis clapped his hand for an instant on his sword-hilt. "'Killed!' shrieked the man in wild desperation, extending both arms at their length above his head, and staring at him. "'Dead!' The people closed round and looked at Monsieur the Marquis. There was nothing revealed by the many eyes that looked at him but watchfulness and eagerness. There was no visible menacing or anger. Neither did the people say anything. After the first cry they had been silent, and they remained so. The voice of the submissive man who had spoken was flat and tame in its extreme submission. Monsieur the Marquis ran his eyes over them all, as if they had been mere rats come out of their holes. He took out his purse. "'It is extraordinary to me,' said he, "'that you people cannot take care of yourselves and your children. One or the other of you is for ever in the way. How do I know what injury you have done my horses? See, give him that.' He threw out a gold coin for the valet to pick up, and all the heads craned forward that all the eyes might look down at it as it fell. The tall man called out again with a most unearthly cry, "'Dead!' He was arrested by the quick arrival of another man for whom the rest made way. On seeing him, the miserable creature fell upon his shoulder, sobbing and crying and pointing to the fountain, where some women were stooping over the motionless bundle and moving gently about it. They were as silent, however, as the men. "'I know all, I know all,' said the last comer. "'Be a brave man, my Gaspar. "'It is better for the poor little plaything to die so than to live. "'It has died in a moment without pain. "'Could it have lived an hour as happily?' "'You're a philosopher, you there,' said the Marquis, smiling. "'How do they call you?' "'They call me Defarge. "'Of what trade?' Monsieur the Marquis, vendor of wine. Pick up that philosopher and vendor of wine, said the Marquis, throwing him another gold coin, and spend it as you will. The horses there, were they right? Without deigning to look at the assemblage a second time, Monsieur the Marquis leaned back in his seat and was just being driven away with the air of a gentleman who had accidentally broke some common thing and had paid for it and could afford to pay for it, when his ease was suddenly disturbed by a coin flying into his carriage and ringing on its floor. Hold, said Monsieur the Marquis. Hold the horses. Who threw that? 
He looked to the spot where Defarge the vendor of wine had stood a moment before, but the wretched father was grovelling on his face on the pavement in that spot, and the figure that stood beside him was the figure of a dark, stout woman knitting. "'You dogs!' said the Marquis, but smoothly and with an unchanged front, except as to the spots on his nose. I would ride over any of you very willingly and exterminate you from the earth. If I knew which rascal threw at the carriage, and if that brigand were sufficiently near it, he should be crushed under the wheels. So cowed was their condition, and so long and hard their experience of what such a man could do to them, within the law and beyond it, that not a voice, or a hand, or even an eye was raised." among the men not one. But the woman who stood knitting looked up steadily, and looked the Marquis in the face. It was not for his dignity to notice it, his contemptuous eyes passed over her, and over all the other rats, and he leaned back in his seat again and gave the word, Go on! He was driven on, and other carriages came whirling by in quick succession. The minister, the state projector, the farmer-general, the doctor, the lawyer, the ecclesiastic, the grand opera, the comedy, the whole fancy ball in a bright continuous flow came whirling by. The rats had crept out of their holes to look on, and they remained looking on for hours, soldiers and police often passing between them and the spectacle, and making a barrier behind which they slunk and through which they peeped. The father had long ago taken up his bundle and bidden himself away with it, when the women who had tended the bundle while it lay on the base of the fountain sat there, watching the running of the water and the rolling of the fancy ball, when the one woman, who had stood conspicuous, knitting, still knitted on with the steadfastness of fate. The water of the fountain ran, the swift river ran, the day ran into evening. So much life in the city ran into death, according to rule. Time and tide waited for no man. The rats were sleeping close together in their dark holes again. The fancy ball was lighted up at supper. All things ran their course. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven Recording by Paul Adams, www.yornguy.com Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.